0: The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 120 Syria Learns a Lesson from the God of Israel After the dramatic miracles of fire, tempestuous wind, and earthquake, God chose to communicate with the prophet Elijah through a still, small voice. God revealed himself in this way to show Elijah that he should not always expect God to provide bombastic miracles, to have his faith strengthened similar to today. God does not often manifest himself in mind-shattering physical events. He speaks through his revealed word, the Bible. However, we must remember that it is the same omnipotent God. Armed with strengthened faith and a renewed zeal to work for God, Elijah retrieved his donkey from inside the cave on Mount Sinai and began his trek north toward Israel in search of the young Elisha, his chosen successor. Elijah traveled for a week before he finally reached one of the main highways. God had specifically directed him to take the route toward Damascus, Syria, most likely along the King's Highway. Although Elijah traversed along this main thoroughfare on the eastern side of the Jordan River, he no longer feared being spotted by Jezebel's henchmen. He was on God's mission and knew that he was protected. No doubt Elijah was encouraged when God told him to take this route he journeyed through the beautiful familiar hills of Gilead. Ten miles before Elijah reached the town of Abel-Meholah, where he was to pick up Elisha, the prophet walked through his hometown of Tishbe. Elijah thought back on his own beginnings with God and was delighted that the next prophet to Israel had grown up so close to where he was raised. Upon nearing the city of abel mihola Elijah asked some of the townsfolk where the young Elisha could be found. Some of the locals told him that Elisha belonged to a large, wealthy family on the outskirts of town. Elijah followed the directions over a couple of hills until he saw dust rising into the air off in the distance. A large gust of wind whipped through the valley momentarily, clearing away some of the dust. Gazing ahead, Elijah saw a dozen plows breaking up the earth, each being driven by two oxen and directed by a man. Elijah continued on until he saw one of the plowmen was Elisha, the very man he was to summon. Elijah quickly picked his way across the plowed field, walking up behind Elisha. Elisha, busy at work, didn't notice anyone coming up behind him until he felt a large piece of cloth come over his head. Elisha immediately stopped the plow and turned around. As he turned, Elisha beheld the old bedded prophet Elijah. He then looked down. The piece of cloth around his shoulders was Elijah's own mantle, a small cape that distinguished him. As a prophet of God, immediately Elisha knew what this meant. He was being called upon to work with Elijah and train to continue God's work. Excited at the appearance of God's prophet and overwhelmed by the prospect of a life in service to God, Elisha jumped off the plow toward Elijah. I will come with you immediately. Elisha stated with all readiness only please let me return to my house to say farewell to my parents of course I didn't intend for you to come with me this very hour yes go back to your family and tell them the news I shall call for you in the morning Elisha left Elijah and led his oxen back to the homestead to tell his parents hearing the news Elisha's parents were delighted at the reappearance of Elijah, but also a little shocked that their son, just a humble, hard-working farmer, was chosen to go with them. Mostly they were honored by their son's opportunity to serve the God of Israel. Soon, all the extended family was gathered together at Elisha's house for a celebration This family was one of the 7,000 that had not bowed their knees to Baal, but instead remained faithful to the God of Israel. Elisha made a large fire and used his farming instruments as fuel for the flames. He also slew and prepared his plowing oxen to be cooked for the feast. This was an outward sign that Elisha was committing himself completely to his new calling. There would be no turning back once he decided to follow hard after Elijah in service to him and God. Following the festivities, Elisha went to sleep one last time in his bed the next day Elijah arrived and Elisha arose and ministered unto him becoming his personal assistant in the years following God led Elijah to see the need to create a number of schools to train young people how to follow the laws of God If the people of Israel were to rid themselves of idolatry and follow after the true God, they needed to be educated. From this point on, we observe many unnamed prophets taking God's message to kings. These prophets were most probably students sent by Elijah. However, it was still only the small minority in Israel that wanted to participate in God's educational system. Most were busy enjoying the years of plenty following the end of the drought and didn't make time for the true worship of God. With their bellies full of food, they did not see the need to thank God for providing it for them. The state of Israel was growing once again, and the coffers of Israel's capital, Samaria, were beginning to fill with gold and silver. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel built magnificent palaces for themselves and filled them with the finest materials, including rare ivory imported from Egypt. News of Israel's restored wealth spread across the lands, leading foreign kings to take notice of Israel's growing power. Particularly King Ben-Hadad of Syria, to Israel's northeast, began to covet the wealth of Israel. Early one morning, King Ahab was awakened by a trumpet blast from the city walls. Startled, he jumped out of bed and ran out of his bedroom as he went through the door. His servants met him and told him, The Syrians are encamped around us. We are besieged. Startled by the news, Ahab strode out of his palace and climbed atop the city wall. He had to see it for himself. Sure enough, the horizon was covered with a thick line of chariots and horsemen. Their helmets and stirrups sparkled with the rising sun. The standards rising above the line of troops revealed it was the Syrian army. Ahab gazed toward the horizon. The line of troops broke and a single chariot proceeded toward the city. It carried Ben-Hadad's messenger. Ahab made his way down off the wall to the inside of the city gatehouse to see what the messages had to say. Thus saith King Ben-Hadad, the messenger said after he lighted off his chariot. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your wives and your children, even the very best and healthiest, are mine. Fearful of all-out war with a far superior army, Ahab told the messenger, Your king is right. Please tell Bethadad that all that is mine is his. I am his servant and will happily provide him with all my gold and silver." Ahab tried to negotiate his way out of a confrontation with the Syrian army by offering what he could. When the king of Syria heard Ahab's response, he was surprised Ahab would hand over his wealth so easily. If Ahab is so willing to give up so much, he must be weaker. And I realize. Ben-Hadad thought, I wonder how much more he would give up. Immediately, the Syrian king sent the messenger back into Samaria. Our king wants you to know that he has changed his mind, the messenger reported. He has decided not to require that you send him the gold and silver. Ahab was relieved by the message. But the feeling didn't last long. The messenger continued, Instead, our king has decided to trust our gods in determining what you will need to give up. Tomorrow, about this time, he will send men into your city, and they will choose what to take. Anything they want, they will take, and you shall let them Only then will the king remove his army from besieging Samaria. Things had gone from bad to worse for Ahab. He called together the elders of Israel, living in the city, for their advice. I offered Ben-Hadad anything of mine he wanted, even my wives and children, if he would leave us alone, Ahab explained. But now... That is not enough for him. He wants us to allow some of his men into the city to take whatever they want. Then, he says, they will leave. However, I don't believe him. I think that once inside the city, the Syrian men will try to take over. It would be much easier for him to destroy the city once we allow his men inside. Therefore, we must stand up to this king and his army. The elders agreed. Emboldened by their support, Ahab sent a messenger back to the king and refused Benadad's terms. What? The king of Syria shouted when he heard Ahab's response. Oh dear, weak king Ahab, defy me. Return! and tell him that I am willing to die before my gods, if I don't reduce the city of Samaria to a pile of dust by the hands of my powerful army. The messenger returned to King Ahab with ben boastful declaration. However, this time around, Ahab wasn't as frightened as before. He had just enough courage to send his own spiteful rebuke back to ben Tell your master that his threat to wipe out my great city fails to impress me, Ahab told the Syrian envoy. Go remind your leader of the old saying, one who is going into battle shouldn't boast like one who has returned victorious. The dispatches between the two kings continued all morning. It was about lunchtime when ben received the final message from Ahab. Sitting in a large tent with most of his accompanying rulers and enjoying a lavish banquet including much wine, ben staggered to his feet when he heard Ahab's response. Enraged at Ahab's insolence, ben barked out, to your stations, Army of Syria. Prepare to attack Samaria at once. High on the city wall, Ahab saw the soldiers of Syria assembling themselves together in battle formation. Quickly, Ahab called his royal guardsmen and provincial princes to help him compose a strategy to withstand the impending assault. While discussing the plan, the king was told that a stranger with a vital message had come to speak to him. The stranger identified himself as a prophet of God and informed the king that God would give him victory against the Syrians to remind him that the God of Israel is the only living God. Stunned by the prophetic message, Ahab asked, How am I supposed to win a war when I hardly have an army? Don't fear, the prophet responded. God wants you to make an army out of the people of the city. Ensure that the princes of the tribes of Israel form the vanguard of your force. They are the best trained soldiers. After you have them prepared, then arm the rest of the city as rapidly as you can. Who is expected to lead this army? We don't have an experienced general, the king replied. God expects you to take charge of the army, Ahab. If you do so, God will bring you the victory. Realizing that a miracle from God was Israel's only chance of survival, Ahab obeyed the prophet of God and assembled the princes together with the royal guard. Only 232 men of war. Ahab then gave whatever weapons were left to the 7,000 Israelite civilians inside the city. With the mixed bunch of fighters and citizens, Ahab started out from the city of Samaria. Obeying God's instructions, Ahab led the 270 princely leaders out, leaving the city gate open behind them. At once, an enemy scout notified the king of Syria, the Israelites have opened their gates. Benadad was imbibing a final drink inside his spacious tent. He grew smugly confident of his army's numbers. How stupid of the Israelites, he muttered to himself. A few hundred men have come out of the city and are approaching us, the scout continued. They look to be in battle formation. They what? ben Haddad replied with slightly slurred speech, shocked that the army of Israel was coming on the offensive with such a small group. Surely... The Israelites know my army is far superior and could defeat them handily. They are probably coming to discuss terms of their surrender, he told the messenger. Call my general and tell him to lead the army to surround the company of Israelites. Whether they are come out for war or to discuss a peaceful settlement, I want them to be taken alive. Soon after, the main column of the Syrian army moved toward the advancing Israelites. The Syrian army confidently spread its force, trying to encircle the small company of Israelites. Still unsure of whether the Israelites would come peacefully, the Israelites waited until the Syrian force was just a few feet away from each of them. Then, with a swift call from King Ahab, the Israelite fighters engaged the Syrian forces. Each man attacked the Syrian soldier opposite him, bringing the first line of Syrian forces down in moments. From a distance, ben saw his soldiers falling fast and knew he was up against some well-trained warriors. He had underestimated both the fighting ability and the will of the Israelites to engage in battle even though they were outnumbered. At that moment, the other 7,000 Israelites stormed out of the open city gate toward the battle. The sight of the oncoming battalion of Israelites terrified the Syrians. They assumed this much larger force was as well-trained as the first group. Fearful he would lose his entire army in this battle, King ben called for his men to retreat. He himself climbed aboard his royal chariot and led his horsemen away from the battlefront. However, the Syrian foot soldiers couldn't get away so easily. By this time, The main Israelite force had reached the battle and began to lay waste to the retreating Syrians. Then the Israelites chased after and even caught the slowing Syrian cavalry, which was having trouble crossing the hard, uneven terrain. Eventually, the Israelites captured many of the Syrian chariots and horses, killing both man and beast. With the majority of the Syrian army decimated, Ahab called for the Israelites to return to Samaria. Triumphant in this battle, King Ahab knew that God was responsible for the victory. Shortly after successfully routing the Syrian troops, a prophet appeared to Ahab with further instructions from God. Go and strengthen your army, Ahab the prophet announced. King Ben-Hadad is still alive and has made his way back to Syria. He is furious he lost the battle against Israel. Next year he is going to return with another large army and will seek to destroy Israel. In the meantime, you should train your men for war. Meanwhile, back in Damascus, the capital of Syria, King ben was receiving his own instructions from his advisors. The reason we lost the war, one advisor opined, was not because those pitiful Israelites were stronger than us, but rather that the gods were on their side their gods are the gods of the hills. I believe that if we were to fight them again in a large open plain, we will be the victors. Also, he continued, instead of including your provincial leaders in the battle group, simply call up conscripts and put them under the command of seasoned generals. This way you will have better control over the army If you implement this strategy You will be able to defeat the Israelites King Benhadad heeded the suggestions of his advisors And started to muster another large fighting force To descend back to the land of Israel This time around He was certain they would not fail